Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 82. So I'm recording this on Monday, June 22nd, and I, I guess I just put that date in there just for a frame of reference, depending on when you're listening to it. One of the things I'm going to mention at the end of the podcast is uh, a free webinar I'm hosting this coming Friday. So uh, depending on when you're listening, you may be able to register for that if uh, the 26th of June hasn't yet arrived. So just kind of keep that in mind. Um, I'll tell you more about that at the end. Um, the other thing I want to just ask you about, you know, of course the studios, at least where I live here in Massachusetts are still closed. If you live somewhere where the studios are open, they're probably uh, operating at half capacity. And, um, you know, as you know, we're all teachers. Um, however, we are also practitioners. And one of the things I want to ask you is how your practice is going. <laughs> I know for myself, I've been running a lot more outside, <clears throat> which is great. I do try to practice yoga at least three times a week to really counterbalance that on the physical side and really just the mental side of doing something that's energetically uh, and physically different from running. And um, I also think that as teachers, it's really important for us to maintain a yoga practice. And I know that it can be hard. Um, and I think right now it can be even more challenging because the studios are closed. So I know um, in, in regular normal times, quote unquote, I would take the class uh, before mine many times. And that would be before I, before I taught. And that would be how I would get my yoga in. And now without going to the studios, you know, I need to roll up my mat. I need to go on YouTube. I need to find a video to do. Um, and I have a couple of go-tos that I'm using. Um, after a while though, those can get a little bit tired and, and boring to do over and over again. Um, and I know from talking to a lot of teachers that they're using YouTube as a way to not only practice, but also to get sequencing ideas. And the more I talk to them about the time they're spending doing that, um, the more it really directed me to my latest um, offer, which is my, blue, uh, which is my um, Bare Bones Yoga Practice Portal. And if you're not aware of this, this is a monthly subscription. And the reason it's a monthly subscription is because it, it not only includes live classes, it also includes additional monthly content that I add every month. So unlike what I just described, you'll actually never get bored because there will always be new content added. When you sign up, you will see uh, recorded content that's there for you ready to go. And then you'll see um, what's coming because I've actually mapped out a plan for what I want to add to the program. So you can see it, you can see what's coming. You know, it's a good way to get excited about what's going to be added over the coming weeks. And as I said, additionally, 
I, I am teaching live classes as well. Because it's a portal, it's all in one place, all on one platform that you access online. And so unlike going on YouTube where you're kind of bouncing from one person's YouTube channel to another, you won't have to do that with this. Everything is all for you, ready to go in one really organized platform. Uh, you can think of it kind of like a library and you can scroll through and see all the different practices that are there for you. You can see the schedule for live classes. And I also want to let you know there's specialty content. So I already have loaded a class on using myofascial release tools before your practice. I've recorded a class just on myofascial release. And there's also an expand yourself section. So it's going to be all about different exercises you can do to really grow from the inside out. So this is more of, of like a personal growth area, which is so much a part of our practice of yoga. It's not just about the physical. So uh, again, here we are June 22nd. The um, subscription rate is $19.99 a month. And when you sign up you in June, you will get the best rate because after June 30th, the rate goes up. So the best time to enroll is in June. And if you sign up this week, I will send you a free set of myofascial release tools. Um, so the massage balls you're gonna need for some of those practices, and I'll send you two of them. So you don't even need to order them on Amazon, I'll just send you two in the mail because I have a, a whole bunch of new ones here. So I really want to um, encourage you to, do, to uh, check this out, not only as a practitioner, also as a teacher. You know, instead of spending endless time searching for sequences, you can find all of that here in this portal. And additionally, you can consider it part of your learning as a teacher, access to sequences, access to information about myofascial release, what fascia is, how it functions separate from muscle. Those kinds of lessons are included in the portal. So the Bare Bones Yoga Practice Portal is ready for you, ready for you to uh, enroll. And the link is right on my homepage, barebonesyoga.com. So I really hope you'll check that out and really use it as support for your practice and for your teaching. So I want you to think about um, your impression of a couple of statements I'm gonna make. And these are statements that I've heard from teachers a lot. Um, and I want to see if these sound like something that you may have said or something that is some you know, maybe a statement that you hear and you think, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. So things like, I want to teach safe classes. Um, things like yoga needs to be done safely. And I'm worried that my students could potentially get hurt if I can't give them a lot of modifications. Things like, there's a lot I don't know about the people coming to my classes, and I'm worried that they may injure themselves. Um, so these kinds of things all fall under the umbrella of this idea of what makes a safe yoga class. And I'm going to dive into this a little bit today. Um, this is actually something I'm going to be talking about in the free workshop I'm doing this coming Friday, the 26th at noon. Um, and I wanted to kind of preview a little bit of the content here on the podcast. Um, so let's just take a couple of moments here to think about what are some factors to consider in teaching yoga, and you could even frame this as practicing yoga, right? Because as teachers, we're also practitioners. So you can kind of look at it through either lens. So some factors to consider in teaching yoga or practicing that might impact the safety, right? So when I say impact the safety, another way to say that is decrease the risk, right? Because risk implies something's risky. It's not safe, at least in the context here of 
a physical practice like yoga. So let's take a look at some of the factors to consider. And let's, for right now, let's just frame it in the teaching frame. So saying we're, we're looking at this from the teacher's point of view that might impact the safety of your students. In other words, the risk that could come up when you're teaching them. So one thing to consider is how often they're coming to class, the frequency of practice. You know, frequency from a yoga practice perspective as well as an exercise science perspective. You know, I have my, my certi two certifications in exercise science, so I pull from that industry, from that background as well when I look at anything. Um, I don't just pull from my experience as a yoga teacher and my background in anatomy from my academic work in school. So when you look at things both in, in the exercise science way uh, or the yoga way, frequency is a really big variable that can increase or decrease risk potentially. And we can look at it not only from the point of view of frequency of practice, we can also look at it from the point of view of frequency of doing a pose. So we could say, let's take the scenario where a student comes to you after class complaining of hamstring discomfort and they point to their sitting bones and they say, man, I just have this constant ache, right? You could even think about that in the context of a runner coming to you as a yoga teacher and saying, man, I, I have this constant ache right around my sitting bones. And through conversation with that person, you might find out that they are training for a marathon. So that would probably be a connection there. There would probably be a connection there. For yoga practice, you can look at it again in terms of frequency of practice and then frequency within the practice of certain movements. So you've probably heard of things like um, a repetitive use injury. One of the most common ones is carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal tunnel syndrome is considered a repetitive use injury because it most typically appears in people who repeatedly do, right, repetitive, repeatedly do a particular thing that involves a lot of use of the wrist and especially different actions of the fingers and you know just from that perspective. So the most common repetitive use injury uh, source is usually typing on the laptop. However, there can be other things if someone has a particular job where they're working with their hands. One of the things that comes to my mind is someone in the sciences where they're working you know, under a microscope, looking at things under a microscope, doing fine tuning things, someone working in something that's assembly where they're assembling things and using you know, fine tuned motor movements of their fingers and wrists to put something together that's, that's small and tiny. So this idea of repetitive use injury if you look at that in the context of yoga practice, right? Think about it. So now we're saying not how many times you're practicing a week, which would be frequency of practice. Now we're saying, well, how many times do you do high to low push-up in your practice? You know, let's say someone has shoulder pain or wrist pain. So frequency is a variable that we absolutely need to consider as teachers not only when we're building our sequences, but also when we're having conversations with students about experiences they're having in their body. I don't really wanna say symptoms because symptoms makes it sound like it's a clinical conversation and we are not as yoga teachers uh, in our scope of practice, our professional scope of practice, if we are talking to people about symptoms and symptom management. However, we can certainly be observers with them and give them feedback based on our experience as long as it stays outside of the clinical. So frequency is one thing that we absolutely need to consider. And from really for yoga teachers, the way frequency is going to be expressed in the container of a particular sequence, i.e. class, is what are we having them do? If we're having them do um, 10 sun A's and 10 sun B's, you can bet that's obviously a lot more 
potentially risky to a number of muscles and joints than if we do two sun A's and three sun B's, right? And then additionally, if as teachers, we have a really good understanding of the anatomy involved in that dynamic movement, i.e. high to low push-up, and we can confidently and clearly express the cues for that movement, i.e. high to low push-up, then the risk goes down, right? It, it has to go down because we know what we're talking about. We're confidently sharing the cues. We're supporting our students because we're present. We're not anxious or unsure or don't know the anatomy and therefore can't express or have no idea how to express the correct cues for that movement. So again, just looking at uh, factors to consider, frequency of practice, how many times per week, and then kind of the partnered thing there is within a practice, the frequency of certain poses or dynamic movements contained therein. Um, so the next one is really a partner with that, frequency and repetition of the same movement. So I pretty much covered that um, in, in the piece I just discussed. So the next factor is lack of awareness on the part of the student. And you'll see this as a teacher. So you'll see it expressed in terms of a student who fidgets a lot, a student who maybe actually stops practice several times throughout the practice, drinks water, does all these other things to distract themselves. Um, and sometimes it's not as obvious as that. Sometimes it's more just um, not really doing each posture completely. And that there can be a myriad of reasons for that. That lack of awareness is definitely something that will increase risk and make it harder for you as a teacher to teach that person safely unless you have some really good techniques to help them get more focused. And what's the most common technique that you have to help people focus? It's your cues. And I promise you, if your cues are kind of rambling on it's very hard for people to focus. And many times the rambling comes from a lack of knowledge on the part of the teacher. And also this fear that my students are going to be hurt. When I work with teachers one-on-one -on -one, and even in my group um, coaching calls that go along with my signature program, the Blueprint Learning Program, I always have a sense when someone's cues are driven by an underlying fear of people getting hurt. Because what happens and how that comes across, right, like how that's expressed, is that the teacher is throwing out every possible option for the student. And when I ask the teacher, why are you doing that? They say, well, I want the student to have a lot of options in case they can't do it the one way I'm saying it. And so while that is a really well-intentioned idea, what it inevitably ends up doing oftentimes is confusing the student because it's like basically throwing them an entire cookbook rather than saying to them, let's open to page nine and let me coach you through how to cook this. And so there always is a balance and Oftentimes, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode, oftentimes there's so much information coming to the student and it's fueled by this fear on the part of the teacher that people are gonna get hurt. And it all kind of culminates in the student being confused. And that's how they appear. They look like they have a lack of awareness. And so maybe it's not really awareness Maybe it's just that they're confused and you're confusing them. Um, another factor to consider that might impact safety or risk is a lack of flexibility. And this may or may not be something that you can see in a student. Um, they'll probably know that they're not very flexible because they'll feel some resistance when they're trying to move on the mat. And so typically, you know, a student that has the impression that they are not flexible, um, their approach and your cues 
combined together can increase risk or decrease risk. So if you think of a continuum with super, super tight and super, super flexible on either end, and you're going into your classes and you're teaching people things that require a lot of flexibility, a high degree of range of motion, that means the risk is gonna go up for those people who are not very flexible. And so your best modification to your approach is not to be on either end of the spectrum. It's to be somewhere in the middle, what I call the middle lane. And so that's one um, shift you can make in your teaching that automatically will decrease the risk. And again, how you're going to um, get there is informed by your anatomy knowledge and expressed through the poses you pick and offer in your sequence. Um, now, by the same token, another factor that goes hand in hand with that is too much flexibility or what you might hear as hypermobile. And so while hypermobility on the clinical side of things actually has, I don't, I don't personally have a lot of experience in understanding the clinical expression of hypermobility. I do understand in a limited way that there is some, um, something at the level of different enzymes, something along those lines, something that we can kind of test for. I think what, what many people experience, if it's not clinical hypermobility, is just range of motion hypermobility, meaning you know, they might not match some of the clinical expression of it. However, they do feel like they are loose in their joints. And it might be all joints, it may be just some of them. Those students as well, just like the really tight, you know, the person who feels like they don't have a lot of range of motion, they're very, very inflexible, is also going to be at risk. And the interesting thing is, just like I said, for the too tight person and the approach being go for the middle lane, it's the same thing for the student who's hypermobile, right? Going in the middle lane. And middle lane basically means a healthy dose of strengthening things and a healthy dose of lengthening things. And then sprinkled over that, a really good understanding on the teacher's part of the involved anatomy and how to express things clearly so that students are not pushing themselves too hard or in poses where they need to build strength. They're hearing from you the, the correct cues that tie to muscles that build strength in that pose, rather than all these other cues that are, are really unrelated to building strength in that particular posture. And to know that, you have to understand for this pose, what are the joints involved? What are the movements that those joints are making? What muscles are making those movements happen? and what muscles are actively contracting, i.e. strengthening, you know, in this pose. And then how do I cue to them? How do I cue to them in an understandable way? So that whole pathway comes from the baseline understanding of anatomy and then the transition of that to the cues that you use. And then the last piece here that's gonna increase risk is, pushing to the end range. And so again, if you use that idea of a continuum, you can use that in the context of someone doing a pose and pushing themselves, I'll just kind of say it generally here, pushing themselves hard with flexibility in mind. So a really easy example of this is someone doing downward dog wanting to stretch their hamstrings, hyperextending their knees, and pushing away from the mat with a substantial amount of force. And so what that ends up doing is with the knees being locked out, the hamstrings are massively lengthened, and they're probably at the end range, the furthest they can go with respect to lengthening the three heads of the hamstrings. And so anytime, just like that 
paradigm I shared with you before, that continuum where you've got super flexible on one end and super tight on the other. If we're cueing people to either end of that spectrum or they're pushing themselves to either end of that spectrum and we're caught up in our own thoughts or feeling self-conscious or feeling not confident or feeling like we don't know what we're talking about or all those thoughts that yoga teachers have that block them from being present, we're not gonna be able to cue them to back it down, to back away. And there are ways to do that that won't make the student feel like you're picking on them. Instead, ways to do that that informs them of the benefit of being in the middle lane. And again, a lot of the how you do that comes from, like I said before, the knowledge of the anatomy of the pose and what muscles are acting in what role. Who's acting as the agonist and who's acting as the antagonist and how can I cue to one? Um, okay, so approaches we can use to decrease risk. Now that we've looked at factors to consider in terms of the risk, let's look at approaches we can use to decrease risk. So we can use clear cues, right? There is nothing like clarity to decrease risk. Like even just think about it from the perspective of directions to use something like a tool that might be a dangerous tool. The harder the directions to understand, the greater the risk to you using the tool. The simpler the directions, the risk goes down, right? Think if you were gonna jump out of a plane, you'd probably wanna have pretty clear directions. So it's the same thing with us as yoga teachers. The more we kind of fumble and bumble and go on and on and are driven by these fears of yoga being unsafe, the more information we're gonna be giving our students because we're driven by this fear. And I'll say, in my opinion, a lot of that fear comes from these old kind of stories and all this kind of stuff about yoga being unsafe. About a week ago, I did a little research online. I went back and read a New York Times article that was written a number of years ago that got a lot of exposure. And it was written from the perspective of um, yoga being unsafe. And when you actually dive into the article, you find out that the poses being offered the students where the students were injured were very difficult, challenging poses, very much so not offered a lot in general open classes. And number two, the frequency, or let's say the sample size was super small. I think for every injury that was highlighted in the article, there was maybe one or two students that got injured. And so then I left kind of the New York Times for science information arena and went to PubMed, which is studies, which is science-based information. And I found many, I went through five different articles, uh, which were um, studies done about injuries in yoga and the sample sizes were big, hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. And the incidence of injuries were moderate. And the types of injuries were sprains and strains, exactly what you would expect in someone who is going to the gym, going running, living life, going to yoga class. This is what happens, right? Exercising has an inherent risk to it. And again, all of what I'm kind of, you know, calling out to you to harness is this idea that understanding the anatomy and how to express it accurately and understandably is your best tool for decreasing risk. Your best tool for decreasing risk is not telling somebody 10 different ways to do half moon, right? Because they don't know which one you want them to do. So I just want you to keep in mind that if you feel this concern about yoga safety, you didn't make it up in your head. It is in many of the messages that are out there. There are a lot of messages that have been out there for a long time. And in fact, a lot of these messages talk about specific parts of the body. I can't tell you how many times I had people come to class and they hold their hand on their SI joint as they're going into a twist, like twisting triangle. And when I chat with them afterwards about, in that case, you know, what's going on there with the SI joint as we make a rotational movement, they have this languaging around the SI joint being 
unsafe, unsteady, could be loose, could lead to a lot of pain unless I lock it down. Like a lot of this around the SI joint in particular is verbiage that's been out there for a long time and not necessarily from teachers who understand anatomy. However, it just kind of like the telephone game gets passed down the line, passed down the line, passed down the line. And the SI joint is just one thing, right? We've got the foot on the knee and tree. Oh my God, don't do that. You could do all this damage to your knee. We've got all these other scenarios that are just kind of out there oftentimes proliferated by teachers who don't understand the anatomy and they simply attached to these ideas and continue to not only teach them to their students but talk about them to other teachers. So again, approaches to decreasing the risk. Clear cues is number one. Along with that, short phrases, right? The more you can make things, ba-bam, 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 the better it is for your students, right? You're telling them, you're telling them, you're telling them, you're telling them. Sure, there are gonna be times when you're gonna get into a little la 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 as you're teaching, a little conversational, that's fine. However, in general, the more uh, clear and short and action-oriented you can be, um, the better it's gonna be for your students in terms of decreasing risk, increasing the understandable nature of what you're saying. Uh, definitely watching students versus practicing with class. I, I really, unless I'm doing something like a workshop or something really special or different, I, I really wouldn't practice with class. I think it just gets in the way of your role as a teacher. I might demo a couple things. I might, you know, do a couple things with them. Very rarely, um, I would say decreasing risk comes in part from you not practicing and watching what they're doing and adjusting your cues based on what you see. Um, another thing to do in terms of approaches to decrease risk is providing cues that emphasize positive movement versus teaching to the outlier or risk. So this comes into play when you say things like, let's come into upward dog. And if you have back pain, I want you to bend your elbows and not bend your spine so much or bend your back so much. You know, in that way, we don't really know how many people in our class have back pain in up dog nor do we really know if our mere suggesting of back pain and up dog is going to potentially suggest to people who don't have it oh gosh maybe do i have low back pain and from a kind of big picture perspective how many people do we really think are going to have back pain coming into up dog and is it more helpful for us to basically approach the posture and cues to it from a general sense, knowing that we can get at those individual students if they have questions and they ask us afterwards. Also knowing that, guess what? The body is gonna do what it's capable of and it's really, really smart when it comes to workarounds. So if someone's trying to come into updog and their spinal extensor muscles are hyperactive and it's painful for them to go into full spinal extension and updog, you can bet they're probably going to moderate how much spinal extension they have an updog, even if you don't tell them, because their nervous system is gonna give them a sense that you're pushing yourself too far. So they'll do something to back it down. Whether or not they bend their elbows, who knows? Um, they might move their hands a little bit. I mean, I think in general, they'll probably just end up modifying it in their own way. I guess the idea is, you know, this approach of, hey, let's approach this posture from the positive rather than approaching the posture, looking at it from the lens of, here's all this stuff that can go wrong. Here are all these things that you might be experiencing in this pose that have to do with pain, discomfort, not being able to do it. And again, you know, you may be listening to this and thinking, well, geez, Karen, I thought we were supposed to provide modifications to make it accessible for all. Absolutely. There's a way to offer those modifications though without your, I don't wanna say opinion, but without coloring it so that people start to either assume maybe this applies to them or even start to kind of like the placebo effect, start to think, yeah, maybe I do have back pain. So a way to do that is to simply state it very objectively. Let's come into upward facing dog, stack your shoulders over your wrists, press into your hands, press into your feet. You could also try bending your elbows a little bit, right? So there, I basically just offered them the option. 
I know that bending the elbows is going to decrease the, um, the arc of spinal extension. I'm not saying all that other stuff about bend the elbows, if you have back pain, yada, yada, yada. I'm basically just offering it. And additionally, I know, because I know the anatomy and what's happening in that posture, that if they have really good leverage using their arms and their legs, it's going to impact any potential back pain they may be experiencing because they're not just using their arms. So I can cue them to the hands and the feet, knowing that cueing to both ends of the body decreases risk to the spine. So I don't even have to get into that whole thing about back pain because my cues are going to set them up in the best way possible. Does it set everybody up for success? No. Is that possible? Not. It's not. So again, what are we really going for here, right? Like what's realistic? Realistic yoga teaching is not, no one's going to get hurt. Everybody's going to love it. Everybody's going to be able to do every pose in the way that we envision in our minds. That's not reality. So our approach has to be informed by the anatomy and with an understanding that there's a hell of a lot we don't know. We don't know their life stories in their bodies right? Even if they tell us something that's wrong, we don't really have enough time or the expertise to really understand the nature of their injury. So there's a shared risk here that's inherent in, you know, doing any kind of physical practice with a trainer or a yoga teacher. There's a shared risk on the part of the student. They're coming and they're knowing that there's going to be some risk in this potentially. And that's just part of doing this activity. Uh, so the next one, using cues that emphasize staying within the mid-range of the range of motion versus going to the end range. So we talked about that in the earlier part in terms of factors to consider uh, that might increase safety or risk. So I'm not going to go over that one again. Um, another one is using cues that provide an opportunity for students to tap into how things feel in their body versus telling them you should be feeling. This is, this is definitely something to think about if you're using this languaging. Come into downward dog, you should feel your hamstrings lengthen here. Come into boat, you should feel your abdominal muscles contract here as you lift your legs, lift your feet up off the ground and you know something along those lines, right? So you should feel basically communicates to the person, hey, you should, and if you don't, you're doing it wrong. And so, and also what it does is it robs them of their opportunity to feel whatever it is they're feeling. So if I've had abdominal surgery and I come into boat and you say to me, you should feel your abdominal muscles contracting here as you're in boat pose. This is a great pose for strengthening your abs. What if I've had multiple abdominal surgeries? I can't feel my abs anymore because I've had several open surgeries. So now, now where am I? So instead, why don't we say something along the lines of, see if you feel or I invite you to focus on sensations in your core or take a moment and see how this feels for you in the area of your core. So that is basically reframing it and putting the student in the driver's seat instead of you prescribing to them what they should be feeling. And so what that does is it inherently decreases the risk because now you're putting the student more in control. You're, it's almost like they're driving in a car and they're looking off to the side and you're like, yo, you need to keep your eyes on the road. In this way, what you're doing is you're essentially bringing their eyes back to the road. You're saying, hey, see if you feel blah, 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 or see what you feel in this part of your body. And this is a really great way to keep them focused, especially if you see that they're off track. Anything that is a question, hey, do you feel or see if you feel? A question or invitation will automatically start to engage your students from a focusing perspective because it's almost like in a conversation you're saying to someone, so, so can you tell me more about that? Or hey, how did you feel when? Right? You're asking them for some feedback. And so framing it in that way, framing the cue in that way is going to, like the student's ears are going to perk up. And once their ears perk up and they hear what you're saying, what your question is, your inquiry question, and they tap into their body, that's where the magic happens. That's where the refocusing on their feeling 
in their body comes more to the fore. And the risk is going to, in most cases, go down because of that, because they're paying attention more. Um, and then the last one is using cues where we truly know the anatomy behind them and could have a conversation with a student after class if they asked us the why behind the cue. That is absolutely one huge thing we can do to decrease risk. If we're just like cueing people to their shoulder blades and down dog because we heard somebody else say it or we think we're saying the right thing but we don't really know because we didn't really learn it, we were just told to say this cue, that inherently has more risk than using cues that you can truly explain. Um, I don't know if you were listening to the podcast about a month ago, I released an ebook called Understanding the Why Behind the Cues. And that ebook, which you can get on Amazon, walks you through my system for decoding a cue. And it's really a test to you as teachers. It's really a test to you to see, can you walk your cue back to the underlying anatomy? And if you can't, you shouldn't be using that cue. You using a cue that you don't understand the anatomy behind inherently increases the risk to your students um, because you don't, you don't know, right? You don't know, like, are the shoulder blades supposed to be doing that in down dog? Like, what's really the impact if I tell them to drop their shoulder blades in down dog? Is that problematic? I heard somebody else say it, and I actually was taught in training to do that. Um, I'm not sure why, though. And so this is just being coachable, right? This is just being curious. This is just, it's not admitting you're wrong. It's not, you know, and a lot of these things are not actually 100% right or 100% wrong because we're dealing with all these different people in our classes with all these different bodies and expressions of yoga. However, there are fundamental pieces of anatomy that you need to know. And then the transition of knowing those and how you create cues, that's, you know, when I teach my signature program, the Blueprint Learning Program, that's the heart of what I'm teaching, right? You can learn all the anatomy till the cows come home, but until someone coaches you through how to transition from the knowing to the cueing, it's, it's next level stuff. And, and this is often where teachers get tripped up. They, even if they know the knowing, they never learned the translating it into the cues. And quite frankly, you know, in my work with teachers, even when they come out of their 200 hour training, they don't have the knowing. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? The anatomy teacher in their 200 hour wasn't really sure. Their agenda was all over the place. You know, there's so many different reasons. It's not about blame. It's just about what's happening and you know, because I love, love this stuff. This is my passion. This is where my programs reside. This is the niche area that I focus on for teachers. And it's so transformational because once you connect those dots between the knowledge, the translation to the cues you use, it doesn't just impact your students positively. It literally transforms you as a teacher because now you're teaching from knowing which is a completely different experience than teaching from just stuff you say. Um, so as a teacher, things that you can examine are the following. Number one, do you use words in your cueing that give students the perception that they will hurt themselves and the body is fragile? I really, 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 really want you to think about this. I want you to think about the impact that your words have on your students. And if you're using words like hurt and could damage and not good and oh, don't do that and all this kind of phraseology, think about the impact that has on your students' perception of their body. Oh, yoga is not safe. Oh, the sacral, the SI joint is really potentially risky. Oh, if I if I do this this way, right? So there are ways we can communicate anatomy information without making it inflammatory. And again, a lot of this, some of this is just ingrained in yoga culture and yoga verbiage that's been out there for a long, long time. And that's why a big part of what I'm trying to do is uncover the rationales behind that and really challenge it because I don't think it's a healthy approach 
And I don't want to say I don't think it's a correct approach because, again, there's a lot of variables, but I don't think it's a healthy approach to teach yoga from that frame, right? We should be teaching yoga from the frame of mind. This is an amazing practice, super healthy for you. And then all this, all these factors I'm talking to you all about today, these are the things that we as teachers need to be aware of so that we can make it's safe for students rather than going in with all this verbiage, making them think that all this, all these actions are harmful to them. And along with that, another thing that you can examine is, do you speak to the outlier scenarios as a way to cover all the possible student experiences that might present in your classes? So that's that example I gave before about the up dog, bend your elbows if you have back pain when you're doing this pose, right? Are you teaching always to the outlier? Teaching always to the outlier, to me, is a sure sign of a teacher who's afraid. Afraid someone's gonna get hurt. When you teach with, it's kind of like, you know, it's, I don't wanna say a global application, but when you're teaching using cues that have broad applicability, when you do that and you understand anatomy, you appreciate and are comfortable with the inherent risk in what's happening. When you teach in general ways and you don't understand the anatomy, that's where the fear comes from. And the fear is almost always exemplified in those cues that you use like, oh, don't do it this way. Or if you have back pain and all these kind of inflammatory words come out. So again, I can't say it enough. It, the underlying foundation, the bedrock of this has to be anatomy knowledge. And I, I really, really encourage you to get my ebook and test yourself. Um, because to continue on, if you're feeling like listening to this, man, I say that, or man, I don't really know if I have a good under, you really owe it to yourself. I don't even want to talk about the students. You owe it to yourself to invest in building your knowledge in this way and filling this gap, not only because of all this we're talking about regarding risk, also, because it is the best, most surefire way to transform you as a teacher, your confidence as you approach your classes, as you approach your sequencing, your efficiency of using your time in sequences, your ability to just teach off the cuff, your ability to just teach without feeling like you have to do it. I talk to teachers now that are teaching online and they're doing all these things with students and I'm like, why? Just stand there and teach. Well, I have to do it with them because it's online. They have to watch me. No, they don't. They don't, right? You can talk people through if you are confident in your teaching ability. If you're not confident, yeah, you're probably going to feel compelled to be in your house on the mat doing everything. They're in their house on the mat doing whatever they're doing. How is that helpful to them? You can't see them. And now it's exacerbated a million fold because you're not even in the same room. You're not even in the same room. Well, they don't know what side to do, blah, blah, You'll figure it out. You're just gonna say right foot forward, warrior one, reach your arms up. And then because you're not doing it, you're gonna see them on the little box in your Zoom call. And you're gonna be able to cue them to some extent better than if you were practicing with them online. Um, so that's, that's the other piece. And then the most important one, right? So we had, do you use words in your cueing that give students their perception that they will hurt themselves? The second one, do you speak to the outlier scenarios? And then the most important one, are you able to walk back every cue you share to explain the underlying anatomy behind it? And that, that is the bottom line. That's what I give you a template to do, a process to do in the ebook. Um, that's really, you know, the heart of everything that I work with teachers on in my blueprint learning program. Um, that's really where the rubber meets the road for all of this. So this whole idea of teaching safe classes is not just looking at our language. It's also as teachers looking really critically, I want to say really critically at ourselves and asking the somewhat tough questions about our learning to date and what we're doing in terms of filling the gaps that we have specifically around anatomy. Because if we have gaps there, that is absolutely something that I don't wanna say is easy to fill. However, it is something we can fill because we can control it. 
We can't control who comes to our classes. We can't control what's happening in their bodies. To some extent, we can't really even control how they interpret what we say. However, <laughs> the more we can fill in our gaps, the more we're taking responsibility for doing all we can to be able to show up fully for them. And what does that look like in one word? That looks like integrity, right? Integrity is not saying cues that you don't know. Integrity is taking responsibility for what you don't know and doing what you can to fill in that knowledge gap. So at this point, what I want to do is I want to tell you two different things. If you're listening to all of this and, and you're like, man, I, I just, I feel like this is really hitting home for me. And, you know, I, I just don't know what to do at this point to move forward, but I really feel like I want to move forward in filling in that knowledge gap for me around anatomy. I want to invite you on Friday at noon Eastern time to a free webinar I'm doing. It's going to cover in part this conversation we had. Um, however, it's also going to cover sequencing uh, and a little bit of anatomy fundamental lessons. So in order to sign up, it's totally free. It's at noon Eastern, as I said. All you have to do is go to my Facebook page. You'll see the invite is posted in the Facebook page. If you're in my anatomy work group Facebook page, it's there too. You can DM me on Instagram, barebonesyoga. You can email me, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Those are all places where you can go to get the link to register for this free workshop. This isn't something I'm doing on Facebook. It's something I'm doing on Zoom. And it's not a publicly consumable thing. I wanna invite people who wanna show up and in order to put your stake in the ground and say, yeah, I want to show up, you got to register for it. It's only going to be done live. It's not going to be recorded. So only book it in your schedule if you can show up. People who show up to live workshops get the most out of them. People who watch recordings don't. I've experienced it as a student. I'm sure you've experienced it as a student. It's just the way it is. So if you want to learn, you got to show up live. So it's noon on Friday, the 26th, and I give you a bunch of ways to get in touch with me um, and also to go to the Facebook page and find the link. So I'm going to end it here for now. And if you have any questions or comments or feedback, please, you know, just contact me, DM me, post a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear what you think about, about this, this whole conversation. I hope you have enjoyed this. I'll see you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my mentorship program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.